I'm Peyton, and this is The Rhizomatic Reader. You are listening to my unedited conversation with Max Walling about Caitlin Dottie's book, From Here to Eternity, Traveling the World to Find the Good Death. You can find an edited version of this conversation on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Play. Wow. Thanks for coming, uh, and sorry we had to reschedule and it took us so long. No, no, you're fine. You're fine. Um, really glad that you're here, and good to, t- good to talk to you again. How, yeah, are, things, how are things going? Uh, well, it, it's good to see and to talk to you as well. Uh, you know, things, things have been a bit wild, if, if, if I'm being honest. And so I took this, uh, I took this position um, at U of H Clear Lake now about two months ago. And, um, it has just not been awesome. Uh, it has just not been a, uh, uh, just the onboarding process has been kind of challenging. And, uh, you know, I think I've had like two meetings with my boss, uh, during that time. And so it, the position that they kind of sold me has been a little bit different than what the reality is. And so the professional adjustment has been a little funky. I'm still kind of trying to get my legs underneath me there. Um, but, you know, post-dissertation defense and post-graduation, like, I have free time now. Like, I get to do at least a little bit of things uh, in a post-defense, you know, but still COVID world. Um, mm-hmm. So that's, it's been nice just to not have something to do all day, every day, even though Dr. Holsweiss does have me. Uh, she is uh, reminding me that I should be publishing my my dissertation uh, uh, articles, and so I'm kind of starting to, to to move forward on that. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, like things have been good. I'd really like to be able to like live a normal life, like a real boy. But people are who and what they are, and so <laughs> so that'll hopefully happen. You know, I, I kind of have hopes for like 2025. You know, that's that's really what I'm what I'm hoping for. Yeah. That's, hmm. I mean, oddly, we're going to have to talk about that with the book today, um, because I think your book, you know, really makes us think about a lot of things related to all of, all of this stuff going on with COVID and morbidity and yeah, how and how we've decided as a culture to think about that. But I don't want to get into that too much, but yeah, it's interesting to hear you say 2025 because yeah, I keep I keep telling people that I get confused some days about what year it is because I still feel <laughs> like it's 2020, but we're almost in 2022. So there's been this weird time warping thing that has happened during this pandemic that I don't really know how to explain to people. Yeah, same. And you know, I don't, you know, I I one of the things that I struggle with, and, and, and maybe this is something that will come up when we're talking about the book, but like, I've had several people in my world, friends and whatever, who have just kind of gotten to the threshold of like, well, fuck them. They're going to die. So let them die. And, and I, or they're there, or they're at the place where like, once kids can get the vaccine and, and an appropriate number of kids have the vaccine, then fuck them, you know, then, then let them go. And like, I just, I feel myself kind of moving in that direction of like, at some point when there are viable solutions and you have consistently not taken them 
at some point, I don't want to have to completely revamp my life to protect you when you're not protecting yourself. But at the same time, like I, I, that approach, I don't care if you die is not a way to heal this hyper partisan cluster that we're in, but also like those people don't want to heal it. So it's, it's sort of this weird sort of like juxtaposition of like, I, I don't want to be part of the problem, but my engagement as part of the problem isn't going to probably affect the existence of the problem because you can't have a conversation if somebody doesn't want to come to the table. And so, but it's the, but it's sort of, I guess, related to the book, it's sort of this cavalier perspective about death of like, well, they've made their choices and they're going to die and I'm not going to feel sorry for them. And it's, I just think that's a bad direction to be going in. Like, I don't know that death needs to be a wailing kind of tragedy, but I also think that flippant disregard for people, even if they are idiots, I just, I don't know. I, I, I I struggle with it. I don't, I, I don't really know where I fall on that spectrum. Well, I think one of the things to think about is just the fact that it, it might be okay to actually be in both places, right? Mm -hmm. That there's not a, that the issue is quite complex and, you know, I can speak freely. I myself have had days where I'm like, okay, the faster all of these people who've decided against vaccines or all these people who decide against masking, you know, the faster these people get pushed out of the gene pool, the, um, the faster we'll be able to uh, get back to, you know, some, I, I don't think we're ever going to go back to normal. I think that's the other part of it is mm. that, you know, it seems pretty evident to me now that this virus, the, the coronavirus, COV2 or whatever, will just become part of our lives. And so, you know, it, it is hard also there, you want to you want to see the thing be able to mutate into a space where it becomes less lethal, which is, you know, or hopefully that's the idea mm. um, is that we'll eventually get to a place where it becomes like a cold virus or a flu virus. <clears throat> um, and of course people still die from the flu every year and stuff. And we've got a lot of problems with that. So I don't know. I think it's like a super complex issue. Um, but then on the other hand, like, like I was saying to one of my friends yesterday, oh, my friend from college, Catherine, I was talking to her and I was saying, you know, on the other hand, I'm perfectly okay with my life in the pandemic. Like I mostly stay home. I mostly read books and lots of things are available to me digitally. And, yeah. you know, I don't, I, I'm very privileged in that way. I'm quite lucky, um, but I don't feel like I'm missing out necessarily on, on stuff. Whereas if I was a younger person, I might feel that way. Like I, I feel bad for young people and stuff, although they don't seem to be giving a shit because they're out at bars and traveling and stuff. So, I mean, it's like, you know, I mean, I don't know, I guess it's, you know, six, one hand, half dozen, another. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, 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 I agree. I, um, these people that just want to get back out and go back. And I, I I'm pretty content with my pandemic life. I, I was even more content when, when Sam Houston had us in quarantine. I mean, I was, I was loving that. I mean, I, I, yes, I miss going to the concert. I miss, I miss concerts in symphony hall. I miss 
and I haven't been doing Astros game in two years. I mean, that, that, that is a thing that I derive genuine joy out of and, and barring, um, going to a couple of friends' houses that, that, that I know are being safe and that I know are vaccinated and that I know are social distancing. Like I haven't really done just a whole lot of travel in the last 18, 20 months. And I, I miss that, but the day-to-day life, when this thing is all said and done, if it's all said and done, whenever we get back to whatever normal looks like after this, I don't know that I'll go eat at a restaurant again, other than, other than maybe like, a, you know, I, I, I went out to eat at a restaurant for my, my graduation celebration, you know, went to a nice steakhouse, but, but like, other than that, like the notion of going down and waiting in line for a Texas roadhouse or Chipotle or like, like I, I've, I've become a relatively competent cook myself and, and DoorDash is overpriced, but if I'm in a pinch, like pizza gets here pretty fast, you know, and like, I just, the experience and, and, and I'm saying that with, without kids, you know, my friends that have kids are like, we will never eat out again until they are 16 and up. <laughs> like it just, the whole production is, you know, if you can have a jug of margarita delivered to your house, like, what are we talking about? Like, what are we, you know, like <laughs> solves most of my problems. So, well, the eating, yeah, I'm glad you brought up eating because like, I actually, I agree with you. I don't think that I'll ever eat out at a restaurant again, except on very rare occasions. And I won't even eat in like, t- uh, I think two weeks ago, we had this like recruitment event for the doc program up at SHSU. And, you know, it was an in-person event. So I went, um, you know, double masked and everything N95 and another mask over it. And they were serving food and like people kept asking me, aren't you going to eat? And I was like, no, this is actually one of the worst things you can be doing for yourself. Like eating, public speaking without a mask. These are the spaces where the virus circulates. And one, one person that I told that to that had asked me was like, oh, really? And I was like, yeah, like, haven't you read any of the epidemiology reports about, you know, oh, yeah, eating in an enclosed space like the fishbowl, breathing out, you know, sucking things in while you're eating your food is probably how you're going to get sick. <laughs> so it's like, I'm, I'm not doing it. Uh, I just, I won't eat around people. I'll just spend time by myself. So anyway, well, interesting times. So thanks for, you know, coming on. The, the first thing that I really like to talk to people about before we get into the book that they selected is I want to ask people about their reading life, okay. history of their reading life, how you would begin to conceptualize that. Sure. You know, it, it, it's kind of an interesting question for me because over the last three or four years, as I've been going through this doctorate program, I would say that, that my reading life has been very focused uh, uh, on you know, the topic of my dissertation, the topic of my coursework. But overall, um, you know, I, I remember when I was in fifth or sixth grade, uh, walking into one of my classes and I had Crichton's Jurassic Park uh, fall mm. out of my bag. And my, my, my teacher uh, at the time was like, you're not reading that. And I said, no, no, I'm, I'm, I am reading it. You know, I, I'm, I'm about halfway through it and I'm really enjoying it and comparing it to the movie and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I mean, I, there's not a whole lot that I think I do particularly well, but I, I found a love for reading at a young age and had, um, 
had had a, a, a sort of an insatiable appetite for books and was reading above my grade level and um, have have always read for fun. And I think for for most of my 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 you know sort of teenage and college and you know maybe even in my twenties. So much of my reading was 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 I would describe it as escapism. Um, I wanted to read, um, you know, uh, the Lord of the Rings. I wanted to read, uh, mm. you know, you know Robert Jordan's uh, Wheel of Time series, Stephen King's Dark Tower. Uh, you know, mm. I wanted to be taken from another, you know, from this world, which is oftentimes frustrating and challenging, and the lines between good and evil and right and wrong are very complex and nuanced and gray. And you can go to this place where it's just, it's very, very easy. You know, you have the evil empire, you have the valiant rebels, you have, you know, you know, life is much more uh, streamlined and straightforward and you kind of know who you're Mm. rooting for. Um, Mm. You know, at the, at the transition of sort of my twenties and thirties there were some life challenges that came along. My, My life sort of restructured in a lot of ways and I, I really started reading a lot um, for growth. Um, the escapism component of it was still there, but you know, there, there's a lot of books on leadership and mental health and things. You know, th- th- there's a lot out there that that um, sort of regurgitates the same idea. But there are some really innovative ideas and some things that I just needed to hear or things that I just needed to read. And so I think in the last five to seven years, um, I've tried to make sure that I'm incorporating into my reading time um, books that give me reason to be reflective and, and, and books sort of like, you know, the one that we're talking about today, uh, you know, that sort of motivated from a period of my life where there was just a lot of death and grief and I didn't understand it and I didn't know how to navigate it and I didn't know what was right and what was wrong, or if there was even a right or wrong way to do it. And so, so I think that that, that initial escapism has become something a lot more um, intentional on my part, where it's not just how can I get away, but also how can I be better in the, the timeline that I'm currently stuck in. Did, did you, I, I want to go back to the, the escapism stuff, but also this idea that you were voraciously reading something that already connects us. And I love that you said it is that Michael Crichton's uh, Jurassic Park is a book that I read in seventh grade. And I had a similar experience where my teacher was like, that book is way above your head or whatever. And I was like, no, I can read this. And uh, and I did. And, you know, I remember this. It, it's one of the few books that I have a visceral memory of like sitting in quiet reading time in seventh grade in my English class and like reading that book. And so it's interesting. Now, where do you like, did you grow up in a house where reading was kind of part of your lived experience or how did you get into this voracious love of reading for escapism? Yeah, you know, my my father has always been uh, a pretty engaged reader. Um, he uh, he's he's a minister. I'm a preacher's kid, and so I think mm. I think he was always um, he was always on the lookout for things that could give him new perspectives on faith and belief. And you know, he read a lot of of, of Christian emphasized things. But his, his, you know, bookshelves were full of, you know, perspectives on other faiths. And he, he's a big, um, he's a big biography reader. Uh, e- even now as an adult, every time I see him, he's reading, 
you know, a book on Thoreau or a book on Lincoln or a book on, he, he's just always kind of doing hmm. uh, uh, some of that. And so I think I probably come by it honest um, because that he was just always, you know, a quiet Sunday afternoon, you know, the football game on mute and a book on the couch. Uh, that was kind of part of my lived experience growing up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, um, that's good to know. So you've read a lot of escapist literature growing up. You grew into this phase of wanting to, to read things that are more helping you grow and develop. What are some of those things that you've been reading besides this book, which we're going to get to? Sure, sure. So, um, so there's this book, the, the, the author of this book uh, uh, has, I think, two others. Um, I really went through a period where I was just sort of absorbing everything that I could about life and death and processing grief. Um, and so, so that, um, you know, one of the most uh, meaningful books that I have read in the last couple of years um, is a book by Mark Manson. And the title of that book, forgive my language, is The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that. Um, book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, th- that has, uh, that has really helped me sort of reframe. I, I, I sort of naturally am someone that cares and is willing to sort of rage about anything. There's just so much wrong in the world and, you know, only I can fix it, of course. <laughs> and that book was a really, um, you know, the, the central thrust of that book is, caring about a little bit less and really, really being intentional and, 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 and um, purposeful in the things that we give our bandwidth and our resources to, whether those be cognitive resources or otherwise. Um, I read recently uh, Man's Search for Meaning. Oh, it's um, a great book. Yeah. And, and that, that, that was actually, when you reached out to me, that was the first book that I kind of wanted to discuss, but the, the overall topic that we're talking about today is, is more important to me, but you know, that um, I think that was a really helpful read uh, just when I was going through some life hardship and just to give you some perspective of, of like, yes, this might be hard, but you know, th- th- there's a certain context that I think it helps to kind of have that in. And then I, I, I recently uh, uh, made my way through a book that I actually believe you might have recommended to me, uh, but it's a book called Wintering. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The it, it's by it's I have it right here. It's by Catherine May. May, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and have recently made my way through that. Um, just you know, kind of talking about the seasons of life, and um, and so those are just a couple that I've that I've read, but all of them uh, have really helped you know, just sort of put my mindset in an appropriate place to navigate, you know, hardship and, 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 you know, periods of life that are maybe less than smooth. Mm, Yeah. I'm going to read, yeah. I'm going to reread wintering during the solstice. I I think Mm. that's going to be in a few months, you know, December. Uh, But I I was going to read it over the summer, but I thought there was something antithetical to that but, <laughs> um but i know that the the main gist of the book is you know around this idea of like taking time off which is why i think when we were talking about the pandemic you know that the pandemic has been a really lovely time to allow yourself to winter to to rethink yourself um my last sort of question about your reading life growing up is just that because your father was a preacher did you ever find that there was a tension between kind of your father's belief systems and the escapist literature that you were reading. 
Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. I um, you know, the the the, the short answer is no. Um, you know, dad, you know, especially in some of our, you know, you know, some of me and my brother's younger years, you know, there would be like a like a summer book club. Um and, you know, he would sort of pick, you know, you, you know, read this or this, read this or this. And, you know, we would we would kind of navigate through that. But I think that as 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 a as a teenager, as a young adult, um, you know, in, in the context of all of the trouble that we could have been getting into, you know, enjoying books about hobbits taking rings to volcanoes mm-hmm. was, was, you know, if, if, if he had to pick from the buffet of teenage problems, he, he probably would have picked that one. Uh, he was always just happy for us to have a book in our hands. Um, and so he and I never really had any, uh, had any, you know, you know, butting of heads with that. One of the other, other things that, that, that I think that he enjoyed about that is that oftentimes whatever I was reading on the drive into school in the mornings or something, you know, we would just sort of talk about it. You know, what are you reading? What's going on? You know, what are the characters doing? What are some of the things? And so I think that even though that may not have been his particular, you know, you know, genre of, 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 of literature, um, he, he found a way to sort of see the good in it and also kind of experience it with us in some, some small way. I think that's really important actually uh, on Friday, I watched the, the kickoff to the National Book Festival, which is hosted by the Library of Congress. And, and they had this, you know, kind of live stream event or whatever. And the, the Librarian of Congress was asking LeVar Burton, who is this year's host for the full virtual festival, about, you know, what he would tell people who want to get their kids into reading. And one of the things he said was, you know, well, you have to role model it, right? Like you have, if, if you are a reader as a parent, your kid will see that and they will probably emulate it. Um, but this idea that your father asked you questions about the books you were reading probably also inspired you in some ways to be like a good reader, to be a careful reader. Yeah, and to, you know, just knowing that, you know, it, it was going to come up like, oh, like, you know, because I talked about this three or four car rides ago, this particular character's arc has, you know, updated to this. And so got to make sure that he knows, you know, mm-hmm. so we're not surprising him later. So, yeah, I think I think you're right. I think there probably was a, an enhanced level of engagement thinking about, oh, dad will want to know that or, oh, this is, you know, this is relevant to the story that I'm kind of telling him, you know. Yeah. So let's get into this really fascinating book that you decided to pick, which is uh, Caitlin Dottie's From Here to Eternity, Traveling the World to Find the Good Death. You sort of alluded to this a little bit, but why is this the book that you ended up settling on to talk about with me? Sure. So, you know, I went through a period now, it was probably, it's probably about three years ago, um, uh, where I had a period of time where I was experiencing just a lot of death and grief. And so um, about this time, three years ago, uh, my, my marriage for more than a decade uh, was, was in the process of coming to an end mm-hmm. um, and, and ultimately, you know, you know, finalizing in divorce. And then mm-hmm. on, in, in, in December of that year, um, one of my very close friends um, just, 
unexpectedly passed away. Um, and, and he, he and I were, were very, very close and, um, it just kind of came out of nowhere. Mm. Two weeks after that happened, uh, it was the day after Christmas. Uh, I was in a courthouse, uh, alone finalizing my legal divorce and about six weeks after that, my stepmother unexpectedly passed away. Mm-hmm. And so there was just this period of life um, where, you know, I'm, I'm employed full time. I'm a full time uh, a, a student in a doctoral program. Um, one of the core foundational support beams of my life in my marriage had had been withering away, but now was 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 gone. Um, one of my closest friends, another one of those support beams gone. And then, you know, my, my stepmother passes away. And so, you know, you know, that, that, that family component is also, you know, for, for my life, uh, one of those core beams. And so there's just loss everywhere um, and grief everywhere. And, you know, life was already full and, and challenging. And uh, I was just in a really, really difficult place. Um, you know, just, I think anyone who's who's experienced death or grief on any kind of scale, but especially a you know a, a large or or recurring scale in a short period of time, it's just hard to get out of bed in the morning. It's hard to see the the reason and the logic and the purpose behind life and the things that we do. And it's and it's hard to reconcile all of that. Those are three very different types of death, three very different types of grief, and any one of them is hard to navigate much less three at the same time. And so I kind of went on a hunt for how do I process this? How do I, um, how, how do I navigate this grief and how do I sort of wrap my brain around death? Um, and I think one of the other things that I would, that I would throw out there is I have, even since I was a kid, I have always struggled with the, kind of the stereotypical American funeral um, where we get together in hushed voices and dark clothes. And oftentimes someone doing the eulogy is not someone that knew, you know, the person who passed or, 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 you know, we, we sing amazing grace, which has always been kind of weird to me. Like that, that song refers to the person as a wretch. I've always just sort of struggled with, with, with some of that, some, some of that language. Hmm. Hmm. Um, but, you know, but we, you know, but we do this, you know, the, these things. And, and at the end of the day, I've always, even, I remember the first funeral I attended at eight or nine years old and just like kind of not getting it, like not from a, this person had passed away perspective, but from a, like, this isn't what grandpa would have wanted. Like, this isn't, you know, he, this isn't, and, and, and so I, I, I share that to say is that I was, I was looking for someone to give me a different perspective. I was looking for someone to say that if the normal approach to grief and death doesn't work for you, um, here's something that might. And so, you know, the, the, the beauty of this book is that they give you 10, you know, or, or, or thereabouts of all of these different cultures and all of these different perspectives. And I have to admit a few of these chapters were sort of like, whoa, <laughs> That's, that's not what I'm looking for. Um, but there were others that really gave me um, a different perspective. And if, and if I can't change the American system, I can at least in my own grieving process, do some things for me to, to honor, you know, the death or to process the grief or to do things like that. And so 
I guess the final thought I would share is that, you know, one of the core themes that she talks about through this book and some of her others is that we, um, we hide from death. We don't, we don't talk about it in our family units. We don't talk about it amongst our friends. We don't talk about, we don't talk about end of life at the end of life, much, much less throughout it. And so I think that it's a, you know, for, for people who are looking for an insightful read for people that, you know, listen to the, you know, you know, to the show, I, I just, I think it's something that, that folks could benefit from being exposed to and thinking about and wrestling with um, because at the end of the day, like we're, we're all going to face it, you know, in one way or another, and we're all going to ultimately be a part of it uh, one way or the other. Yeah. I mean, I might invite you, I sent you this document that has all of these quotes that you pulled and that I pulled, and this might be a good place for you to read this first quote that you pulled out, which is really kind of like the epigraph to the book, you know, before the book starts at your first bullet point. Cause I think this is a really important part of the book. Yeah, I agree. And so, yeah, I have that pulled up here. And so this is from, uh, uh Irvin Yalcom, who's a psychiatrist. And he says that, uh, adults who are wrecked with death anxiety are not odd birds who have contracted some exotic disease, but men and women whose family and culture have failed to knit the proper protective clothing for them to withstand the icy chill of mortality. And like, I don't, I don't have words that need to be like, they need to add on to that. Like, I think that's a pretty concise, uh, uh, you know, description of sort of the American culture at least. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was really fascinated by this book. I think that one of the points that she's trying to make and she makes it in the conclusion is that she says, if you really want to understand a culture, you should try to understand their relationship to the dead. Mm. And you, you hear a lot of these, you know, the best way to understand a culture is how do they treat their children? How do they treat the elderly? How do they treat the homeless, the infirm? We rarely talk about how we treat the dead. And I think you're right. Um, we, have a very bizarre relationship to death and dying in the United States. We don't like to talk about it. Uh, the, I agree with you about funeral rituals. I find funerals to be very odd events uh, in, in one regard, but, but in a different regard, the book made me think about you know, how even in the United States, we might have very different ways of approaching death because when I think about, I don't think always that funerals have to be these like sad occasions. I think sometimes they can be celebrations of life. Um, so there's just, you know, the, the, there's a lot of stuff that, that we have to think about here. And I think death really freaks people out, even in my own house, you know, uh, like my partner, for example, is like very petrified of of dying and mm. um, or mostly of me dying. And so there's like a lot of anxiety and, and stuff. And, but when we try to talk about it, it, it becomes this thing that has to get brushed under the rug, you know? Right. You know, as, as if, uh, you know, burying our heads in the sand will somehow stave off the, you know, the, the eventuality that, that we're all going to, die you know it, it is you know and i understand when i started this it was it's it's kind of unpleasant to think about uh but but it, it but it, you know 
ultimately, and I think she makes the, you know, this point in this book of whether you're prepared for it or not, it's, it's coming and it's, it's going to come, you know, for the people around you and it's going to come for you. And so, you know, you know, this, this quote about, you know, having failed to knit the proper protective clothing, I, I think for me, that's really what my Mm-hmm. journey from you know you know from that initial period three years ago has sort of been um you know to to, to contemplate my death somewhat regularly and to, to you know expose myself to different ideas because it 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 it's um you know it's like the old joke death and taxes you know it's uh it's 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 going to be something that all of us have to face and experience at at some point um uh, do you feel, do, you know, you, you sought these books out because you were dealing with a lot of grief and death and dying. Do you feel like the book helped you to process that in some way? I, I do. And I think, I think it helped me in a couple of ways. I, I, I think first, you know, um, the, the author, she, she, is, she is very direct in her opinion that the the Western approach to death and dying and grief um, is 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 in her opinion fractured and broken, and so I think that 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 you know I always you know and, and maybe this is a this is an experience you, you've you've also had, but I've I've always felt um, sort of wrong or insensitive in in funerals and in those kinds of things, because you look around and everyone, not everyone, but, but so many people are just beside themselves in, in grief and in tears and in sadness. And in, and I have, I've never really had that experience at a funeral. And so I've always felt, you know, I think the, the natural inclination is to look inward, like, well, what's wrong with me? Like, I should be sad. I should be crying. Like, this is a loved one of mine. Like I should be beside myself and I'm not. And so I think that the first thing that really helped was just this notion of like, if you, if you don't feel that way, you know, at funerals, like you're not alone. Um, There is something, you know, there are different approaches. There are different perspectives. This, this is a system that has been very, you know, corporatized and that has been very, you you know, that, that isn't necessarily about, grieving and health and wellness to come from it, but it, but, but, but about other things, you know, about revenue generation, about, you know, you know, other things that maybe aren't as tied to death and dying. And so I think that that was, that that was helpful. And then I, I, I think that, you know, the second way that it's been really helpful is that in processing some of these other forms of death, something that's been incredibly beneficial to me is to begin to contemplate my own. And what I might want out of it and how I might want to sort of set things up for my own, you know, post-life care, but also kind of setting a, setting an expectation of my loved ones of how I would want my life to be celebrated. Um, and, and in, in through that kind of thinking, I, I can't change what everybody else wants to do, but I can find some meaning in my death and hopefully you know, the last sort of lesson or the last perspective that I can give some people is that, you know, through my funeral celebration, you know, whatever that looks like, um, that other people can, you know, who, who have been uncomfortable might come to that and think there is another way that this can be done. This, this was perfect. This was so max. This is exactly what he would have wanted. And to give them a different experience than a, 
a slideshow and amazing grace and no disrespect to people that love that. It's just not, that would not be a meaningful ceremony for me. Yeah. I think, you know, the corporatized nature of how we do everything in this country, which is also tied subtly to a theme in the book about the legal issues that come up around death in the United States. There are like lots of policies and laws that I didn't know about um, that really make it expensive Mm -hmm. and uh, not personal. Um, You know, I'm very struck in the book by all of the, all of the ways that she talks about, you know, in, in the United States, you don't get to really spend time with the person after death like we cart them off we embalm them we or we cremate them and we do that as quickly as possible we um yeah and then we we force people to pay tens of thousands of dollars to buy caskets and burial plots and tombstones and all of this kind of stuff. And I was just like, oh my gosh, because I have not had to deal with that yet with my own parents. But Mm. I, you know, I just think, or, or, you know, she even says at some point something about like, you know, the funerals are weird because you have a two hour wake. She says something about like, there's no dignity in death, right? It's like, it's even a timed process. It has to be efficient. Uh, You know, the, the, the wake is going to be two hours and then you go to the funeral plot and you, have another little, you know, ceremony there, maybe, you know, whatever. And then people leave before the body is even buried in the ground. Like you let the groundskeepers take care of it. So even all this like lack of personal family being involved in the process was just, I was like, right. It's so striking. Well, and, 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 and it's, you know, if you've, if you've got, you know, if you've got a ceremony at the funeral home at, at, at nine and at noon, you, you got to get them out, <laughs> you know, you gotta, yeah. Okay. You know, amazing grace, how sweet go bye. you know, get out. And, and, and there's the, and, and it's, it's, it's interesting in the book where some of these ceremonies take days. Some of these ceremonies take longer. Some, uh, I, I forget the, the location, uh, uh, which chapter this was, but you know, some, are, 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 are mummified and are brought out, you know, you know, once or twice a year for major familial celebrations or, you know, I I mean, those, those processes go years. And then you have an American culture that's, you know, the, 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 the next bullet on the prep notes talks about, um, you know, talks about this nurse that called the funeral home and, and says, you know, can, can she take the body? Like, isn't that, I mean, the people that work in the death industry don't know what the rules are. Going back to your point about learning a lot of things that you, that you didn't know, like the people that like, we're, we're so shielded from it that not even the workers know what, what, what can and can't be done, what, what, what is and, and isn't illegal. And I think that there's just this, it, 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 it goes back to what you were talking about a moment ago with, with, you know, the, 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 the death talk kind of being swept under the rug. I, I think you see that in a lot of our rituals and ceremonies too, of just the sooner we can get this thing done, the sooner that the world will spin on and we won't have to think about it. We won't have to see it. We won't have to process it. We won't have to make decisions about it. We can just get through it. And, 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 and once we're through it, we've grieved, 
the process is done. And I think that for me, what I learned very quickly in my, in my experience a couple of years ago was that the process being done nowhere near was the end of my, I mean, it was probably another year before I was even remotely well uh, uh, with, with some of the loss that I had done. But I think we try to put those blinders on and if, if we can get it done, then we'll have, we'll have taken care of our responsibility. And I just, I don't think it's a healthy way to, to process this. Yeah. One of the, you know, speaking of that, you know, pages one to two that you pointed out where this is like right at the beginning of the book and, you know, she wants to take the body home and all of this kind of stuff. It reminded me of another book that I read this year, just on my own, which was Tracy K. Smith's Ordinary Light. And that book starts out with, uh, it's, it's a book about her mourning the loss of her mother from cancer. And what I remember from the book is that, you know, the mother decided she wanted to die at home. And, you know, she's, Tracy K. Smith spends a lot of time in the front part of the book talking about um, the home health care of her mother dying and the way that the family sort of was there in her last days. And then quite viscerally describes the moment of death, right? Like the, the last exhalation of breath and, and then what they did as a family to each, they each, they gave each other each time with the body before they called the coroner, right? Mm -hmm. And she describes her own, that she decided to cut off a lock of her mother's hair. And she carries that with her, right? Mm -hmm. And, and I just remember that because I, I was thinking, you know, she was so poetic in explaining about that, that moment of saying goodbye to the body before the official, you know, state apparatus comes in and takes it away. And then they have all the funeral and stuff. And um, I don't, you know, there are many places in the book where that is a cultural norm. Right. Yeah. You know, many parts of the world, you spend time with the body. You might bring the body out, as you said, like, you know, yeah, I, I found that chapter in, uh, I think it's in Indonesia. Mm. where, you know, once a year they have these celebrations and they go to the tombs and they bring the corpses out and they dress them up and they parade them around and they give the people, you know, their favorite things. It's kind of a Dia de los Muertos thing in Mexico too, to a certain extent, except they don't bring out the corpses necessarily. But that raises another question that I had in the book, which was, and about the weird way that we deal with things around the world and particularly in the United States. And that question is, you know, where is the line between bodies that we're willing to see in death and bodies that we're not? I started thinking a lot about mummies, for example. And, and I was just thinking you know, mummies were buried. The ancient Egyptians had a process for how they wanted to bury their dead. And we as a culture have really desecrated that by 
you know, going in and excavating tombs and excavating the, the pyramids and putting these bodies on display in museums and stuff. I mean, do we, am I weird for thinking about that? I'm like, we, we kind of like have this weird relationship to viewing the dead and we're okay with viewing some people and not others. I don't, I don't know. I just, the book made me think a lot about that. Uh, yeah, that, I hadn't naturally thought of that on my own, but that is a really interesting, that is a really interesting sort of, sort of thing to, to think about, because I, I would be interested to see how many people that, that attend those types of museum exhibits, like if you asked them to describe the primary concept of what the, of what they were looking at right there, I wonder if that I think that they could say things like history. I think they could say things like art. I think they could say things like, I just, would death be the top two or three or four things mentioned? I don't even know that they're, that they're thinking about it in the context of this is a dead person. This is a dead body. They probably get there. Now that you've mentioned this, I, I went with my partner recently and saw the, the Pompeii exhibit mm. um, uh, down yeah. here at the, uh, uh, at the Houston Museum. And, you know, they've got, they've got a, 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 a section of that exhibit where they have the, uh, the bodies of people either fully or partially sort of, you know, mummified or petrified or whatever in, 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 in the ash. And, and, and it's interesting, the experience that, that, that she and I had going through that exhibit of like, you know, you see you know, you see, you know, you know, these, these exhibits of, of, of deceased adults, and then you see, you know, a deceased child, but it was the deceased dog that got both of us to go, huh? Oh, Mm. (laughs) you know, that, that that kind of snapped us out of a, these, these are, you know, these are dead bodies. These are, but, but, but it wasn't, it wasn't the, the humans that got us thinking about that. It was, mm. it was, you know, you know, it was something that, that hit closer along the line of our pets. And so I, I just, I don't even think that we were going through that exhibit thinking about it in the context of death and dying until we kind of got shocked out of that, you know, out of, out of whatever other perspective that we were using. And so that it would be really interesting to see how people perceive that. Cause I would just bet it's not death centric. Yeah. And well, that's, it's fascinating too, because, you know, relationships to pets and animals and how we think about even though the book is not about this, you, you think about the relation, like what you have to decide to do when you have to put a pet down or when a pet dies, you know, there are uh, just like with humans, there are all these options and, you know, a few years ago, pre-pandemic, I had gone home and my mom's dog was very old and very sick and she waited for all of us to come home. And then we decided to put the dog, you know, to rest. Mm. And so me and my brother took the dog to, you know, get put to rest and just like having to make all those decisions about, did we want the dog cremated? Did we want the dog's ashes? Did we want, you know, and it was expensive. Like, um, but but that's not, you know, animals, one thing. I, I, I think that the book just makes you think also about 
all the ways that we either memorialize or don't memorialize death. And I Mm. think that, you know, you drive by a cemetery, you know, it's a cemetery, but are you thinking about, you know, like, what are you thinking about when you're driving by a cemetery? Or I'm thinking about, she has this uh, kind of, addendum to the book about thanotourism, which is the idea that you're like touring spaces of death. Mm. And she talks about museums and she talks about memorials and, and places that we go that were sites of mass death and how we memorialize that as a culture. And I think that it's very odd in the United States in a lot of ways, the way that we do that. I mean, Here's another example, Max, that I've been thinking about. Hmm. You know, we just went through 9-11. Right. I, I think about the 9-11 Museum, and I read this article that was either in the New York Times or NPR last week when, when 9-11 was happening that was talking about the criticism that had been leveled against the 9-11 Museum because it it really is not a space of, it's not a space to memorialize the dead. The article was saying that it's a place that memorializes uh, violence and the reaction to the 9-11 events, Hmm. right? And that a lot of people who criticize it, criticize it because the museum is not really chucked full of memories about the people who died there. It's chucked full of things like you know, portraits of the terrorists and the, the reactions, the war in Iraq, the, the invasion of Afghanistan, the, and it just made me think, I was just like, yeah, you know, we, we didn't do a great job of, of honoring those people who died in that terrorist attack Mm -hmm. or who died in that event, you know? Which would be different than like, say, like a Holocaust museum or something where I think that they really, uh, I think like the way that the Germans have memorialized those who were killed in the Holocaust is very different than say, like what we've done here in the United States. That was the first place my brain went to of just, you know, some of the, some of the world war museums, the Holocaust museums that I've been to, there's there's always a little bit of contextualizing information about other things that were going on, about the war, about the leaders, whatever. But 95% of it, in my experience, is usually about, you know, the, the experience of, you know, of the concentration camps and, you know, individual stories. And, 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 and it's much more, you know, I think emphasized in what I would say is the right place for it to be emphasized. And so, yeah, it, it, it's really, you know, this, this touches on, on a thought um, and, and, and I imagine that we were going to get to this at some point today, and this, this may or may not be the best place for it, but, you know, th- I think that, that, that part of our context on death is in how we experience it. And so your, your, your comment about 9-11 made me think this, but, you know, I, I don't know exactly what the, what the death toll was from the 9-11 attacks, but I think it was somewhere in the 3,000, 4,000 kind of, kind of range, depending on what figures you're looking at. And that was 4,000 people in one day. 
Um, and everyone saw it. Uh, uh, everyone saw it. Everyone experienced it. You know, th that is probably my generation's, you know, oh, well, where were you on 9-11? And literally everybody knows. I was in a high school classroom, you know. Um, but we've had individual days during the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah. And, and at the very least, we are, we are hitting that number every 1.5 to 2.5 days. And one of those events changed the world in the, in, you know, in the, in the 20 years since in 9-11 and a, a, a colossally magnified amount of death via the pandemic globally, not, not in one concentrated, you know, or two or three concentrated areas in the United States, but globally. And there is such resistance to change and there is such denial of, of, of the reality. And there is, and it, and it, I mean, there's, this is probably a whole different podcast show, but, but how we see it and how we experience it. And, you know, the report came out, I think this week and that, you know, one in 500 Americans have died and, a lot of people don't know anyone who's died or who, you know, don't know anyone who's, you know, in, in their inner circle of life who, who has gotten sick. And, and many of those who have can sort of explain it away of like, well, they had a pre-existing condition or, oh, they were a little bit older. And just how we define and experience and, 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 and ultimately like label and determine the value of death, I think is so contextualized in, 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 in the situation that it takes place. And, you know, we made an offhand comment earlier about sort of the, 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 the corporatization of death, but there is a, you know, politicalization and a, and a, and a, you know, a religious context and a belief structure context that really, you know, I, I don't necessarily want to put it in that like this death is important and matters and this death can be explained away, but it is kind of what we've, seen the human condition do um, in comparing different different uh, types and, and 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 reasons of death and so I think that's one thing that that you know I don't think I would have thought about it if I hadn't read some of these books but it, it, it it's something that really it's something that I really really struggle with in my in my personal life and in my political life and in my belief structure of like d death is not death in, in in that all death is one-to-one -one. Um, there are different types and different values and different, you know, you know, j just different ways that we weigh it, uh, depending on a, a high number of factors. Yeah. I think, you know, bringing up COVID is like very appropriate. And I had even written that in the notes as we prepared was that it, the book does make you think about, again, I would say part of our reasoning for not, because we have a culture that avoids death the pandemic and the number of deaths that have been caused by it have allowed us to ignore the deaths, right? We're, we're worried about the politics of choice. We're worried about the politics of freedom. We're worried about vaccines, no vaccines, science, no science. I mean, that, and all of those conversations are super important and stuff, but, you know, I said a long time ago, probably back in 2020 sometime, maybe over a year ago when things were still, well, I think things are still bad now, but 
when we were still at like this height of the first or the second wave, whatever they were calling it. I said the single greatest thing that we could have done as a society to have combated this pandemic would be for CNN or MSNBC or Fox or any of these you know, global news networks to just broadcast someone dying from COVID. Mm. Just put a live stream on of someone gasping for breath in isolation, away from their loved ones, no, you know, all, all of the stuff that we've read about. But it doesn't hit people the same way when you read about it as it does when you're actually watching it. And so I said, you know, get all the talking heads off of the TV, the politicians, the medical experts and stuff, and just put a live stream of these people dying, what, they, what it looks like. That would have done so much, I think, to help people to see. It's the same thing that like, you know, the Vietnam War ended, why? Because it was broadcast into your home nightly, maimed, maimed bodies and all that. And then we made a decision as a culture that we weren't gonna show that sort of thing on television. Yeah. And that's probably part and parcel of the reason why the war in Afghanistan went on for 20 years, for example. Right. Because had we shown the dead and maimed bodies, people probably would have risen up and said, not to ignore death, but to say, we don't want people to die that way. Right. Right. I, uh, I, I, I have learned that what people see is really what informs their reality. Um, people can, you know, people can read, people can, can hear, people can, but, but, but what they see, I, I remember this was uh, several years ago, but there was, a, there was a football player. I think his last name was, was Rice, um, but he was accused of domestic abuse uh, with his wife. Uh, and, you know, investigations made the news cycle he was given a two, maybe three game suspension, something like that. And then the video came out oh. of him knocking his wife out in an elevator. And he never oh, played yeah, football yeah, again. Yeah, I remember. You yeah. know, I don't think he ever played football again. His, his, right. his career was ended because now instead of, oh, this person has been accused and now it's here's, here it is. Here's what happened. And the collective societal conscience, at least for NFL fans and NFL teams, was no. Like, we're not going to, we're not going to accept that. We're not going to tolerate it. And so, so to your point, I, I, I share that story to say that I agree with you. I think that if we, if we saw, you know, we saw 9-11 and we've seen, you know, the, the very people now who, you know, in, in response to death, don't want to get a vaccine or don't want to wear a mask or don't want to socially distance, you know, that, 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 that would be, you know, a, a response of death, saw the death of 9-11. And I mean, our entire world has changed, it, it, especially related to, to travel, you know, taking off your belt, taking off your shoes. Like uh, to, to me, if, if, if we want to make a playful joke about the infringement of my rights, I feel like going through an airport terminal is much more of an infringement of my body than putting a mask on, you, you, you know, I, I, but, but no one, no one in 20 years that I'm aware of has talked about you know, the, the, the inconvenience of their freedoms 
to wear shoes in an airport or to wear a belt in an airport or to be able to take a container more than three ounces as a carry on as a, as a fundamental human right, you know, that they will, that they will not comply with. You know, I, I, it's just, it's very interesting that when we see something, Mm -hmm. it seems to totally change our perspective of our response to it. Um, and, And I think that there are just, there are several examples of, of how we respond to death in that in, in exhibit A, we'll bend over backwards to, you know, to, to accommodate inconveniences. And then another perspective, we, you know, there's a, a not insignificant portion of the global population that's just, no, haven't, you know, just, just, just firm, no, full stop. And it's just, I think it just goes back to how we experience it is, it, it just, it, it informs so much of our response uh, uh, to it. Now, in an odd way, that brings us to another topic, which the book does really well at, in my view, which is the ways that other cultures outside the United States deal with death. Mm. Um, You know, there are some chapters about parts of the United States. There's a chapter about California, North Carolina, Colorado, um, but even those chapters are set up as uh, ways to counteract the kind of corporatized, uh, high money, highly uh, non-personal ways of handling death that we do in most of the United States. So I am, I, I think the book allows us to see other ways that we can process death, Indeed. other ways that we can you know, from other cultures. And I'm curious about which, if any of these really stand out to you, because there are several that stand out to me that I have pulled and and said that I think that they're important to talk about. Hmm. Yeah. You know, there were, there were a couple that I thought were really interesting. Um, You know, her, uh, her discussion of, of, you know, her own interest in the sky burial, but that, that, that mm-hmm. wasn't its own standalone chapter. That was more of, of, of just some of her commentary at the end. But um, I thought that that was as, as someone who is increasingly interested in, I guess what an American would refer to as sort of a non-traditional, you know, you know, death, you know, ritual ceremony. Uh, uh, that was one that generated a lot of interest to me. I think one that, that, you know, the, the, the one I, I I believe you said it was Indonesia. I'm glancing at my notes really quick, but I, I I you know the one with Indonesia where they have sort of the ongoing relationship with the deceased, where they you know they bring them out and they clean them and they you know sort of you know repair them and they clothe them and they you know bring them to to, to other ceremonies or other rituals. I, I that that to me was. Um, was really sort of shocking. And I think she even opens the book by saying like, you know, you're going to read some stuff in here that may really challenge your, your preconceived notions of death and what's appropriate and what, you know, what, what is sanitary or healthy or, um, and, and, and that, 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 that particular chapter really, um, got my attention. It's also one of the early chapters in the book. And so I remember sort of getting into that chapter and having this really emotional response of like, what am I reading here? Like, what have I, what have I gotten myself into? Um, But, but I think that that, you know, 
in in someone you know in, in in myself who's who's looking for different ways to process and different ways um as i have gotten some distance from that chapter uh, uh over the years that i i i get it i i get that there's something about you know my 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 close friend who passed away uh, uh during that three-year period his 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 name is aaron and um i i could see myself really enjoying an opportunity to have a ritual or have a celebration and him be physically there, you know, not having a conversation or, you know, you know, you know, you know, dancing or anything, but, but just to have him there, there would be something uh, I think that he would have loved about that. And I think that there's something that I would love about that just to, just to see him and to, have, to you know, to, to, in some ways make more memories with someone who's gone. Um, and, and, and so I think that stood out to me. The other chapter that, that, that stood out to me, um, I, I always, one of the other kicks that I have gotten on in the last several years of my life is just, just around sustainability in general, especially yes. <laughs> in, 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 in uh, environmental sustainability. Yeah. Um, and, and it's part of my interest in sort of having, you know, you know, what, what, what the author calls, you know, you, you know, you know, eco death or, you know, an, an, an eco funeral. Um, but the chapter um, in Tokyo, the, the, the chapter in Japan about the, the so tower good. and the, the light up things and, you know, <sighs> the, you know, that, that, that you can log into your phone and, you know, you know, you know, see the memorial on your phone and, you know, and again, it was one of those, it was one of, you know, I had sort of this initially negative emotional reaction of, well, that's so, you know, disconnected and that's so, you know, just, just, it, 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 it's not like, there's not a lot of heart and soul in that. And then, you know, again, as I've gotten some distance from that chapter, I think that, but the things that we do right now in America don't, don't sort of scratch that, that, that itch, that need for me either, for it to be connected, for it to be meaningful, for it to be soulful. And, and so I think about, especially this younger generation of people who have a very different digital life than, than what I have had throughout most of my life. And I think that, that there is true meaning in something like that for so many people. And from an, from a, from a sustainability, you know, you know, environmentally friendly perspective, um, there, there, there's something I think really worth exploring there as well. And so every chapter stood out to me in, in, in some different ways, but I think that those are two that really, for someone who was looking for a different perspective, those were two incredibly radical perspectives that, that I think initially I kind of shied away from. But as time has gone on, I've really seen how I could find some, some I, I could find more meaning in some of that than what I have found so far in my life. Yeah, the, the Japan chapter is, is so good. Um, and I, that's one of the quotes I pulled actually from pages 187 to 188, which is the Japanese have not been afraid to integrate technology and innovation in their funerals and memorials. And, you know, reading that chapter, you learn that 99% of people in Japan are cremated. Yeah. Right. Uh, so there's not this, this concept of like the body burial, but I, yeah, the, the glowing Buddhas, I actually went and looked it up. Like, I, you know, I went and like saw the images and for, for listeners who, you know, might not know what this is about. It's, it's this idea that, you know, you, you buy this, 
you basically buy a place to put the remains of your loved one. Uh, it, it contains a Buddha and it, it's in a room with thousands of other, you know, Buddhas and they use technology that you go to the window or whatever, and you type in your burial plot code or whatever it is. And your person's room, that Buddha lights up a different color than everybody else's. Yeah. And, and then you can retrieve it. Right. I was even, I was even very interested in, in these, they have a space issue, right? That was one of the things that came up. Where do we put all of these, these dead right. bodies? And, you know, they've built giant office towers in the middle of Tokyo where you can, you know, go and a robot will retrieve the remains of your loved one and you're in like a private little cell or a room or whatever. And they even have electronic um, tombstones, right? right. So it's like, you know, you type the code yeah. in and there's, you know, and it pulls up an electronic tombstone and yeah, it's, it's really, it's really fascinating. Yeah. It, it, that, that, that chapter, the Japan chapter, it, it really took me down a line of, of thought about like, you know, you know, what do I, not even what do I want, but like, what do I need in terms of, of, of my afterlife uh, uh, memorial? And, it, and, and I've really wrestled with this idea. And I don't even know that I have an answer for it that I can share today, but like so much of the death process is this, at the end of the day, I think a lot of people want something to say that I was here. And whether that's a whether that is a tombstone, whether that is a plaque, you know, on a crematorium, whether it is a virtual, uh, uh, you know, Buddha tower, you know, you know, sort of situation, and and I have sort of come to this thought of like, you know, do I do I need that? Do I want that? Like, how many years until like nobody cares? <laughs> you know, which is kind of a morbid thought to be reflecting on, but you know, is that you know, because I, I, I think part of us, part of the fear of death is, is not only in, in you know, the, the fear of the actual act and the pain. And, you know, I think one of the big human condition questions of what, if anything, comes next. But I think that also part of that fear is that by, by acknowledging your death, you're, you're in some ways indirectly acknowledging that at some point people are going to move on. People are going to, you know, in a generation or two, are, are, are they going to forget? And I, I'm, I'm very intrigued by some of the cultures that are, that are built to not forget, you know, you know, the, the, the Indonesia yeah. culture, the, the, you know, the, the, the Mexico Dia de los Muertos culture. Um, but like, what sort of memorial do I need? And, and where my reaction was initially very negative to the whole virtual thing, digital thing, I, I think that there's a part of me that's like, you know, it'd be nice to at least just have something electronically, but I don't know that I necessarily need a, a plot of land to occupy for the rest of my life. There's probably something that that land could be doing better than holding me in an expensive coffin. Well, it also, it also brings up the question about, you know, what is the purpose for whom is it designed? Yes. You know, like, so you have very different ways of thinking about that. Like, let's go back to the Indonesian culture for, you know, a second. Um, 
this idea that they bring the dead out, they have a relationship with the dead, is, is a cultural belief that is not so much rooted in, I don't know, I don't know how to say this. It's, it's like, they've decided as a culture that they honor the dead and that the dead are still kind of living entities in the world, right? That you right. want to build a connection to that dead person. Same thing with Mexican culture, Dia de los Muertos. Right. Um, so there's, there's an honoring of the ancestors. I think that when you think about the United States, the, the tombstone or whatever, is it, is it really for the living or is it for the dead? And you said something about like, I want something so that people know I was here. Hmm. So it's a very interesting philosophical and moral and ethical question about what, what do each of these approaches to death, who is it actually for? Is it for the living or is it for the person who's dead? Yeah, I, I agree. It's, 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 it's interesting that you bring that up. I, as I was, was talking with my partner over brunch this morning and, and talking about, about our upcoming conversation and, 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 and the book, you know, that was one of the topics that we touched on is that, you know, so much of, of the, the ceremony and the ritual around death, who, who is it for? Because it seems to be, you know, in, 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 in my experience with the, with the American system, is it, 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 it really seems to be survivor yes. centric, you know, putting, putting yes. you and your family at ease and, you know, oh, we can play this song or, oh, we can, you know, make these social media posts or, oh, we can do this. And, and it's about the, the comfort and the, and the, the, you know, the experience of those who are, who are still here. And I think that in, in the best possible world, it, it, it probably should be a little bit of both, <laughs> you know, what, what the deceased wanted and what, what was meaningful to them versus what, you know, you know, you know, their, their, their survivors want, but, uh, but it's interesting. I don't think that it was in this book. I think it's in one of her other ones, but she, she, she talks about the, the conflict that people, that families will get into about what the family wants versus what the individual wants and, 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 and how that can be, uh, you know, especially if you're already at someone's end of life, how it can make that end very conflict, you know, you know, you know, focused and very, very disjointed and very stressful and very, and I think she leverages that as, as, an, as you know, another argument of communicate your wishes early, give, give people decades to wrap their heads around it, you know, give, give yourself decades to, to wrap your head around it, because I think, you know, m most of us are going to evolve in what we want and what we value and what, what, what a meaningful, good death, as she would call it, looks like. And instead, we, we don't do that. And then we get to the end of things and we're trying to make a ton of decisions in a heightened emotional grief state. And it, 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 it allows, I think, one, it allows the, 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 the corporatization to maybe take advantage, oh, totally. but it also, it, it, it also prevents people from getting what they need, both the person who's dying 
and the people who will have to navigate the grief process. One of uh, a few years ago, my grandfather passed away, and um, in 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 talking with my with my dad about it, he he gave a uh, an explanation that has always kind of stuck with me. Uh, you know, again, my father is a minister, and so is mm-hmm. part of serving a church for thirty or forty years. He he. He has experienced a fair amount of death, and he's been to his fair share of funerals and and uh, things of that nature. But um, one of the lessons that he taught me was, you know, you know, at a at a period of 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 death of someone that you really care about, everybody needs something. And so when when my grandfather passed, you know, you know, he he has four children, um, and you know, my dad needed to have some conversations with my grandfather before he passed. There were things that he wanted to talk about, things that he wanted to share. And that was what he needed. Um, Some of the other kids needed different things. You know, one needed to be there with him at the end, needed, Mm -hmm. needed to be there holding his hand. You know, that's, that's what that particular sibling needed. The others needed other things. And the, the process that we currently use uh, and that we currently follow and the avoidance, the death avoidance that we take, I think that it, it prevents so much of that from happening. Uh, both, you know, because c- not only do, do the siblings need things, but, but, but grandpa probably needs some things too. You know, he needs to say some things to the woman that he was married to for 60 years. He, he needs to say some things to his children, to his grandchildren. And if we don't, if we don't plan, if we don't talk about it, if we don't look at the death experience and kind of get a sense of what everyone needs out of it, I think we get to a put to a place where it's it's rushed, it's maybe a little bit. Um, I don't want to use the word soulless, but it 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 it's 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 it's, it, it's business like. It's we do this, then we do this, then we do this, and you pay your bill. And then the world spins on and we, no one ever really gets what they need on either side of the equation. And I just think that, that, that there just has to be a, it's part of the reason why I wanted to talk about this today is that I think just so many people find themselves in that situation of not getting what they need. And then for the, for, for, for those who, who, who are left behind 10, 20, 30 years of pain and suffering take place because we didn't do the work on the front end. And, and, and I think that there's just so like, Closure is not that difficult to get if we're willing to face some things that we're going to have to face one way or the other anyway. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it. I think like that, that thing that you were talking about where you were saying it can become very stressful. That's, that's assuming that death happens naturally. Right. The book makes you think about, again, all the ways that death can happen, like quite unexpectedly and and in quite uh, quick terms, you know, the number of people who die in car accidents or, you know, again, going back to COVID, I'm sure that a bulk of these 600,000 people who died in the last year and a half did not anticipate that they were going to die particularly the younger people. Sure. Um, and then you don't even get to have a conversation to talk and, about and, some and of these. That, and that's what I'm saying is that like, you know, if you die in a tragic way, there's, there's no, or a sudden way, there's no opportunity if you haven't done the forework, the, you know, the, the work at the front end to really understand 
what that person wants or what they need. And, and you're not prepared as a family or as, you know, whatever, you know, as friends, as members of a congregation, workplace employees, you're not prepared to handle the loss and it becomes very difficult to process it. Yeah. And I think, I think for me, this is sort of one of the key takeaways from not only this book, but I think just the, the concept overall is that, you know, this, this is a book, you know, I mean, that, that, that talks about, I mean, the, the subheading is traveling the world to find the good death. But for me, really, on, on the point that you just made, this book is really, I think, about finding the good life. Because mm. one of the things that, 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 that this has taught me is, is, is it can happen. Like, literally today, <laughs> it could happen, you know, to, to, to me, to a loved one. And so it has really reframed how I how I live my life. There are just, there, I, I, I can't think of anything off the top of my head right now that I have left unsaid to the people that I would need to say some things to, to my friends, to my family, you know, expressions of, of, of love, expressions of, 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 you know, appreciation, lingering conflicts. Um, I, I just, if I have something oh. that I need to say, I try to get it off of my chest as soon as appropriately possible. Because with, with Aaron's passing, especially, um, you know, two, two weeks before he passed, we were scheduled for a phone call and, and I bumped it back. I called him and was like, Hey, I'm just, I'm just not in a good headspace. Can we talk, oh, you know, a little bit later? And then he was gone and I never got to have that conversation with him. And so sort of one of the commitments I have made to myself is like, that is just not going to be something that I want to experience again. And so it has, it has, it's given me context about death and what happens after life, but it has also really informed how I manage and how I engage in the relationships that are the most important to me. Um, because to, to, to the point that you have made, you don't always have a lot of time. You don't always have any time. Um, and, you know, if something were to happen to me or my father today, I would be absolutely heartbroken about it. But I would also know and feel very confident that he, he and I were, were, we knew how we felt about each other. We, we knew where our, you know, you know, that our disagreements had been resolved. There wouldn't be either of us sitting around for the next 20 years worried that something hadn't been resolved or worrying about our love for each other or anything like that. And so, so I think that, that, that to sum up my point is that for me, this has really been a book about life and about how I want to engage in the relationships that are closest to me, knowing that one day they're going to end. And it, it, I, don't, I don't know when that's going to be. I think that's really intriguing, actually, as a takeaway from the book, because when you were talking, I was, I was also thinking about, you know, you said, for example, oh, I'm not you know, going to put off this important conversation with a, a friend or a loved one, or I'm not going to, you know, do certain things that I used to do. And, and this is maybe a little bit of pandemic talk, but it, it is an interesting way. I, do you feel like the book has made you 
rethink the things that you're wanting to deal with in your own life anyway. The reason yeah. I say that is because, you know, I think one of the things that has happened over the, and I'm, I'm not there yet, right? We're always works in progress, but like, I've, I've really let a lot of things go in the last year and a half because mm. I've realized that they are not actually that important to who I am as a person. They're not really important to the overall life that I want to live, to live. And, you know, I think that the act of living needs to be just as intentional as the book is saying about the act of dying. And so I'm just, I'm just, you know, I'm just curious about that because I think that it's even like, I'll, I'll just give you like a really simple example is that like, I try, and again, I'm imperfect at this, but I'm, I'm just trying not to let things that are, are really out of my control irritate me the way that I used to let them irritate me. Right. Yes. Like there's no reason for me to go and live a whole day of my life irritated about someone's tomfoolery, for example, or yes. whatever the case is. I don't want to deal with that. Or like in my own relationship, Derek and I don't fight very often. We, you know, we're quite congenial with each other. We, we love each other. We're, we're in a good space most of the time. But when there is that just natural tension because of human relationships, I think we try to resolve it very quickly, primarily before one or the other of us goes outside of the house, because we don't want to carry that with us in our life. And I think I agree with you. I wouldn't want to carry that with me if something were to, you know, God forbid happen. I, I, I think that, what you have shared is, is, is spot on to what I would want people to take away from the book. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know, cause I haven't done the research, but I would just imagine that on their deathbed, no one, no one is, um, you know, no one with their last words is saying, Hey, respond to that work email, <laughs> you know, you know, Hey, you know, that, that guy on Twitter that said that thing that I didn't like, tell him he's a jerk. You know, it, it has like, and, and I don't necessarily want to go too far in the other direction, but, but one of the things that I, I think I make people uncomfortable with a lot when I talk about this is like, the reality is, is that almost none of it matters. Almost none of the things that we get angry about, the things that keep us up at night. I mean, it it matters to us in the moment. It matters to us in the context of work dynamic and, 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 you know, our, our belief structures and whatever. But at the end of the day, the things that truly matter at the end, at the end of our lives are, are, I mean, I think that you can count those things on, on, on two or three fingers. Um, and, 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 you know, for me, I think it's different for everybody, but for me that, you know, those immediate relationships with the partner with, you know, whoever our inner circle is, whether that's friends, whether that's family, you know, to, to me, that's one of them. But one of the things that I've learned from, from reading this book and, and, and Manson's, uh, uh, subtle art book also kind of helped me get here, but just like the, the things that truly matter, are, are, you know, the things that are worthy of our bandwidth, the things that are worthy of keeping us up at night, 
um, are, are very rarely the things that we are giving our attention to. And, and so I think for me, it, 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 it has my, my dad, uh, you know, he, he's one of the few people that I've talked about, you know, these books with a lot. And one of the things that, that he and I have kind of come to, to, to discuss a lot is um, his perspective of that, you know, when, when death happens, the, the world, um, it, it just spins on. You know, we'd, we'd like to think that the world will pause for a moment to give us a moment. And, you know, you know, dad tells a story that, you know, his, his father, you know, passed away early in the week and dad as a practicing minister, he, he was in the pulpit on Sunday, you know? And I mean, and part of that is that he, he chose to be, but he, his responsibilities to his congregation, to his family, you know, you know, to, 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 to his wife, you know, you know, you know, his kids, those responsibilities don't, don't take a time out. They don't, they don't pause, you know, they don't, they don't change and the world just kind of spins on. And so I think that in in that context, what really matters, (laughs) you know, what, what, if the world's going to spin on anyway, there's so many things that I think that we hold on to that give us stress and that give us grief and that give us challenges that, 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 that in the context of the world spinning on, it's like, wow, that, that's not where I want my bandwidth to go today. That's not where I, even, even, even if I have 50 more years to live, I want to be focusing on the things that, 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 that are truly the most important to me. And if, you know, some person on Twitter's tomfoolery is, is, is where your bandwidth goes, that, that is your choice to make. But I think, you know, to, I guess to more concisely answer your question, I, I have found that exploring these themes have radically changed how I think about things. And, 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 and to your point, I'm an imperfect person too. I'll come home after some days of work and oh, yes. just, just need, need to take 10, you know, to, to rant and rave and, you know, you know, you know, rage against, you know, you know, you know, you know, the, the systemic challenges that we see. But, but, but I try to get off of that pretty quickly. You know, that, that is more of a therapeutic getting it off my chest and then get to a place where, where I can be investing my time in the things that, that I want to be and, and, and letting myself just enjoy a measure of peace and a measure of happiness, whether that's a good book or a Netflix binge, you know, mm. or just, you know, kind of, you know, curled up on the couch with my partner or, you know, having drinks with friends. Because I think at the end of the day, you know, if, 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 if I have an opportunity and, you know, to not die suddenly and immediately, I think on my deathbed, those are going to be the things that I value. Those memories, those experiences, those, you know, dying with confidence that like my friends know I love them. My family knows I love them. My, my people know that I care about them and that there's nothing left undone. Um, and that I didn't, I think one of the fears that I've had probably up until recently is just getting to the end of my life and then looking back on it and just realizing that I was angry the entire time, that I was just frustrated and unhappy that, you know, the world wasn't the way that I wanted it to be or that these things were happening. And so I've, I've taken an approach to life of like, do I care enough about this, you know, yes or no. And then like, if I can do something, what can I do? Can I donate my time? Can I donate my money? Can I, you know, and if the answer is like, there's nothing I can do or I'm insufficiently motivated to do something, then going through the cognitive exercise of truly letting that go, not, not ignoring it, but truly in my brain and in my heart, pushing that thing off to the side and acknowledging like that is a fight. 
that other people are going to fight, but it's not that particular fight isn't mine. One of one of the things I think social media has done for us is it has just it has asked us to care about literally everything. And I just don't think that the human brain and the human heart has evolved that far yet. Like we just can't, we just can't. And so we find ourselves in this rat race of caring about everything, which ultimately allows us to care about nothing, which ultimately allows us, causes us, I think, to die in a really negative way. Maybe there's some mental gymnastics I did to get to that point, but that's just how I see it. Yeah, I social media has caused us to to worry about everything i mean social media is very that's a whole other whole other conversation it's a whole other (laughs) podcast because well it's it's very odd max i mean you know we like going back to the theme of like things that we've been trying to do is you know also this idea of like for me something that's very important is just that i want to understand as much about the vibrancy of the world the the differences of the world Mm. like that's something that's very important to me and i want to be able to lay on my deathbed and feel like I experienced as much of the fullness of humanity as I possibly could. And, and not just humanity, but of just, you know, the natural world, the mm. history, like everything that, that is so that I can go to rest feeling like I lived a big, full, robust experience. Mm. And, you know, I think books like this really help with that. It's part of the reason I started this podcast because I was like, wow, people are interested in such different things. Every single book, except for one, I think, that I've read thus far on the podcast episodes has been something that I probably would never have read Mm. if the people hadn't come on to the podcast. Mm. I've learned a great deal already. so, yeah, I think that it's, it's not just about like resolving tensions and conflicts. It's about being intentional with how you're going to approach the world, your life, and then how you want to approach your death and how you're going to reconcile that as an individual. And that I think is very difficult. That's something the book makes very difficult if you're afraid of thinking about death like most of us in this culture are yeah i i agree no i i wholeheartedly agree i think you know my 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 dad's inside of you know at at the you know as death approaches everybody kind of needs something and i think that 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 argument you know building on 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 what you've just said i i think that argument can be extended to the to the life part of it as well I, i you know I think all of us, whether we know it or not, or whether we've formally thought about it or not, there are things that we want out of life. And whether that's relationally, whether that's experientially, whether that's, you know, certain achievements that we want to obtain. And, and like, 
you know, she poses the question, you know, you, you know, what is the good death? And I think, again, you know, I would flip that of like, it, it's also about what a good life is. I think if you haven't yeah. had the good life, you probably can't have the good death. And so it, it all kind of extends for this, this life journey that for most of us is hopefully decades and decades and decades long. But I think if you don't think about it, you get towards the latter portion of it, and then you feel like you have to catch up. And, 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 and I think, you know, like what you're talking about of, you know, this is a thing that I need. And these are the things, you know, you know, that I'm doing right now to pursue it and to achieve it. And like, you know, I think for you that that probably never ends as long as you're able to pursue new experiences, you will be pursuing that. And I think, I think that is the, that's the good thing. I, 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 I think that, that having those kinds of things that you're pursuing in a good life that leads to a good death. If, if they can't, if there's not a finish line, I think for me, that's one of the things that is really, it's an ongoing journey. And that journey ends when the journey ends. And I, 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 I hope that I can find more of those things for myself as I continue to explore, you know, the good death, but also the good life with, with this doctorate program wrapping up. I have a, I have a new, I sort of feel like, a, like I'm getting a fresh start. In, in, in some ways uh, with my free time and my bandwidth. And so I think that's, I think that's a, good, um, a good insight of that it's, it's not just about the relationships, but it's about what do you, what do you need for, for a good death to even be possible. And it goes back to the whole thing about, you know, who is death for and who are the ways of the good death for? And I think that, yeah, I think that it's for the living. Um, you know, I'm thinking about that conflict piece and how you might resolve that while you're still alive. Like that, the idea that there might be a different approaches to what you want to do. For example, I found one of the, I knew about this well before I read the book, but I, I found one of the most compelling chapters to be the one about uh, the body recomposition, which is basically body composting that they're trying yeah. and in North Carolina. And, you know, I had heard a couple of years ago about this idea that you could get buried in a, a mushroom suit and sure. you know, your, the, the fungus would, you know, eventually eat away your whole body and you'd become, and then there are various stories in the book about, you know, having your ashes planted inside of a you know, cup with dirt and a tree sapling. And, you know, there are various ways that you can go and return to nature. Um, right. We don't, the, the way that we embalm people in the U.S. doesn't actually make that quite possible. Right. Um, but even the, you know, the, the California chapter about just burying somebody not six feet under, but, you know, a little bit higher above and then letting the animals, I think that's the thing you were saying about the, uh, the air burial. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, the, she, the the sky burial I think she talks about was with the vultures. <laughs> the vultures, yeah, 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 right, exactly. That like you know the vultures come and they eat your corpse, and then you you know you get spread out all over creation because they they've eaten your body. Um, anyway, the the whole point of that is, you know, I quite think that for myself, I see myself as connected to other sentient and non-sentient parts of the earth, I think that we are, you know, just part of the cosmos and we just happen to be in this form right now. 
Um, and so th those types of approaches to, to going to rest seem quite appealing to me, uh, you know, being deep, you know, being composted or, uh, being buried in a mushroom suit or something like that and, and not going through all of the stuff. Um, but that makes, whenever we've talked about this, I've said, you know, like my partner, for example, he doesn't want me to do that. He wants, you know, he says, oh, I need a place where I can go and visit you. And I think these are the, um, the types of like conversations you have to have where like, where can you make a compromise so that what the person needs for themselves or what they see for themselves, and then also what the living person needs or the living people, how do those things get reconciled? Um, and I think the book will allow people to start to have those conversations about these are various ways of interacting with the dead, various ways of being buried, various ways of, you know, whatever, whether it's the technological urn in, you know, the Buddha tower in Japan or, yeah. or, you know, being composted and spread out under trees in North Carolina or, or cremated even on the pyre, um, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's really, really helpful to see all those different perspectives. Yeah, I agree. It, it has certainly led to some interesting conversations, you know, just with my, you know, self and my, you know, you know, some family members, myself and my partner, because I, I, I'm a very similar, I'm, I'm of a similar mindset. Um, you know, the, 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 the author actually has um, an organization um, called uh, Recompose that, that, yes. that is doing the eco-death uh, uh, stuff. And so I haven't put my initial down payment down yet because I, I, I want to make sure that, you know, that, that a, a long-term partner has an opportunity to at least, you know, process that with me a little bit. But, uh, but, but I, I have that same thought and, and with the existing culture that we have, I think there's, there, there would be a lot of hesitancy about that from a lot of people and, and finding, like you said, that compromise, it, it's my life, it's my death. I want to have a say over it, but I do care about people sufficiently much to want to accommodate their needs as well. I don't want to, you know, it would be, it would not be a good death for me if in my, you know, if, if after my departure, I had caused grief to others. That's not what I want my, you know, my my final act to to be about. And so I do think that the book enables some 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 different perspectives of just strictly the American perspective to begin having some of those conversations of well, what about this or what about this or could you be comfortable with X or Y? Um, and I, I I think that that's a healthy. I think it's a really healthy starting point for for a lot of us who. Um, just aren't going to be satisfied or not have a good death with the current, you know, traditional option. Mm -hmm. At least in this country. Yeah. Yeah. In this country. Yeah, for sure. Are there other things that you're thinking about that we didn't talk about uh, from the book? Um, you know, I think we've had an opportunity to cover a lot of it. There, there, there was another quote that you had put up that I just think for me is sort of the, mm. for me, it's just sort of the, the quote of the book in terms of just what got my attention. Um, but, but she has, you know, the, the context in the book is that she has taken a, a, a an assistant with her to view one of these death rituals um, who's, who's not used to it, uh, who, who hasn't seen or been really been exposed to a lot of this. And they're having 
they're having a meal, I think, afterwards, and she's just kind of asking him about the experience that he had and what his perception of it was. And his response is, uh, um, you know, when your bills come due, you have to pay them. At my company, I pay my bills. At this restaurant, I pay my bill. And it is the same with feelings. When the feelings come, the fear of death, I must feel those feelings. I must pay my bill. It is being alive. And I think for, for me, that just, I, I have internalized that in so many different ways um, to sort of encourage me to, to not only face my feelings of grief and sadness and hardship related to the death that I have experienced, but also just the importance of, of contemplating my own and, and, and coming to terms with it as soon as I can and talking about it with the people that I care about and making sure, you know, not only the death component of it, but just the, the, the life that I have to still live as well. And making sure that like, you know, when you know that you're going to pay your bill when, and, and, and in the context of death, like it's, it's, it's something that we all share. We're all going to pay that particular bill. And so knowing that you're going to pay it, I, I just, I, I, I feel coming into that awareness and becoming comfortable with that awareness. It gives me so much time to sort of build up my bank account of relationships, of experiences. Um, you know, there, there, I don't know that it was in this book, but another resource that I read said that by the time that death comes from you, it, it, it should be welcomed like a long lost friend. You know, you, 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 you should be at a point where you've, you've prepared for that meeting and you've lived for that meeting and that you're, you're, you know, maybe not eager for it, but that you're ready, uh, that you're ready. And, and, and I think for me that, that quote is really that, I mean, it, it, it is, you know, being alive, knowing that, that, that I think a lot of the beauty and a lot of the meaning in this life comes from the reality that it is not eternal. We, we do not have forever to, to not only say the things that we want to say, but do the things that we want to do, experience the things that we want to experience. And um, I think that just a lot of harm can come from waiting and a lot of harm can come from, from not having that perspective. And it has allowed me in, in the short time since I've read this book to just live, I think, better and, you know, to take care of my relationships and to seek out experiences that are important to me to, to manage, you know, for me, you know, my health and wellness to assume that I can live, you know, yeah, you've or, gone through a huge transformation, by the way. Uh, I have lost 150 pounds. Uh, I, I know I have. And, 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 and part of that stems from, I want as much time in my timeline as I can get to have as many experiences and as many, you know, and it, and it really, you know, just because we have to pay the bill doesn't mean that we have to pay it soon, <laughs> you know? And so I think for me wanting to live as, as long of, and, and as capable of a life in terms of being physically capable to do the things that I want to do and go the places that I want to go and not climb up a single flight of stairs and be winded um, that, that limits some of the things that, you know, it's going to prevent me from having some of the experiences that I want. And so um, I think for me, that's just, just sort of one of my, my, my really big takeaways of just, if we know that the bill's got to be paid, why put our heads in the sand and ignore it? Why, why pretend that it's not, why not be ready to pay that particular bill so that when the time comes, maybe not only we're prepared for it, but maybe there's some work we can do 
throughout our lives to help those around us be prepared for it too. And to make that be an experience for them that truly can be a celebration of life than than, than what it seems like both you and I have experienced so far, you know, in the American funeral death grieving system. Um, And part of that journey is on, is on them, but, but, but part of it is on us too, to, to get there so that we're good and that those around us are as good as they can be. Um, I think that's just one other thing that I would want to share that, that, that has been a major takeaway from me in terms of a motivator to think about these things and, and, and to, to take action, to live differently. Yeah, that it's, it's very beautiful. Um, I think the thing that I am taking away from the book, because it goes back to this question of what is the good death? And it wraps back around to the way that this book is structured as a kind of cultural anthropology of death. And I think the book just continues to make me grapple with the way that in our culture, we have a simultaneous fear of death in that we avoid talking about it. And we also have a quite cavalier attitude Mm. towards death because I think that we don't live in a culture that does a very good job of honoring the dead or thinking about how to give those people a quote unquote good death. Mm. And what I mean by that is, you know, I think American culture, the book is not about this, but the book makes you think this. American culture is very violent. It's very wrapped up in death uh, in a lot of ways. you know, we love killing people. We love war. We love, uh, apparently we love disease. Uh, you know, like, um, I, I say that because I think that it's, it's part of the reason that we've not been able to have really good cultural conversations around things like dealing with the COVID pandemic or dealing with the epidemic of gun violence or dealing with the types of not just uh, COVID related deaths, but other types of preventable deaths that we could have in this, in this society yeah. um, around environmental racism and cancer and other types of you know, things that cause people to die. Um, I don't know. The book just leaves me thinking a lot about if we changed our relationship to death in this culture, would that lead to bigger cultural changes that are long overdue? Yeah, I I would, you know, it, it, one of the things, and then we touched on this a little bit earlier, but one of the things that I really struggle with amidst this, this, this pandemic is like, yeah, people are dying but the economy, um, you know, right. and, and, and this I sort know. of active downplaying of death. And I, I was, I was in, in a conversation the other day um, where someone just sort of very casually was like, well, you know, like not many kids are dying. And I just kind of, you know, as respectfully as I could, I just kind of took a time out and said, hold, hold on. Like just, just the fact that any kids are dying, like that, that, that is, 
that is a pretty profound statement to say, well, only a couple of kids are dying. And it's like, but this is a person saying this that has two kids. <laughs> and it's like, it's, it, it goes back to the conversation we were having earlier about like how we experience and how we view the death. If the death is over there and we can sort of make it a statistic, that's one thing. But if it's our grandmother, if it's our eight-year-old child, suddenly it's, it's, you know, you, you see this, this is not the purpose of the conversation today, but you see longtime gun advocates whose children are killed in school shootings turn around and say, we need some gun control laws because this, uh, this sort of, you know, you know, you know, conceptual thing that we can sort of put over here suddenly is in our front yard and our backyard and then our home and that has affected us directly. And I think that, that, that it's, a, it's a dangerous way for us to be a society of only wanting to take action about and care about things that land in our front yard. There are certain things that when they land in our front yard, if we haven't done the pre-work to prepare for it, by the time it's in our front yard, we're really in trouble. And I think, you know, I, I, I tend to talk about climate change in that perspective, but I think that, that, that death is one of those things too of, if this, if this, you know, if, if the school shooting, you know, you know, you know, parental person had been advocating for gun change on the front end, maybe this would have never landed in their front yard, you know? And, 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 and so I think that it, it has an opportunity going back to death. Like it has an, I, I think that there's an immense opportunity for it to reframe some of our other societal values. I just think it's a long road to get there. Oh, it is a long road, but I, you know, the book does make me have some hope that if, if more people, because dying by gun violence or dying by some preventable thing is not a good death in in the sense of like, it's not a good way to die. Indeed. And, and so, you know, the book is about memory and, and memorializing people in death, but I think it also raises all of these questions about you know, what do we want to do as a culture so that people can die with dignity Mm. and, um, or on their own terms to live the longest life possible type of a thing. Agreed. So it's, it's a wonderful, very different type of a book. It's very easy, very accessible to read. Uh, You know, I highly encourage people to read it. I really loved it. I'm glad you enjoyed it. So thank you for bringing it to me, Max. I appreciate it. Well, I, uh, I'm appreciative for the request to join you. And, you know, it, it, it probably comes as no shock to you. Uh, it is difficult to have in-depth conversations with people about this kind of thing. Like, I think even initiating it with my own father, I think it just took us a little while to get to like, oh, okay, like we can... You know, there, there were not maybe like strong barriers, but there were just some roadblocks we kind of had to get over to have these kinds of conversations comfortably. And because we've just been conditioned to not. And so I, I appreciate being invited and appreciate just I, I always appreciate our conversations about mm-hmm. deep and heavy things, because because even some folks that you could have the conversation with, it's not always particularly insightful. And so I've, I've taken a lot from our conversation today too, and we'll probably be rereading this at some point with, with some different perspectives in mind. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. It's been, it's been great to spend a few hours with you and, and I hope we do it again soon. Uh, Let's not be strangers. Yeah, let's, let's not. And, and, you know, I would love to, you know, I've got, 
the, these last three or four years in my doc program, I've been a much better book collector than I have been reader. And so I have like a hundred things that I would like to be reading. And so if you ever need a, a, a return guest, I can pick something out and send it your way. And I, I would, I would, you know, either in this medium or even just casually, like I would, I would love to stay in touch. Well, please, uh, you know, go read your hundred things. I've got <laughs> thousands um, and, you know, you've got to, you've got to do it. Uh, you've got the time now. And I think that I was reading, I forget where I was reading this, uh, but somewhere recently I was reading something that, you know, given the average length of most books, if you just read 20 pages a day, that's something like 36 books a year or something like that. Wow. Um, of, of course, you know, many of us want to read much more than that. Like I've read, I've read close to over 50 books this year alone. Um, and I wish I could read even more than that, but um, you also don't want to rush through things. And so, yeah. Well, you know, and, and you've got that pesky work, you know, you got to occasionally well, log in and, you know, yeah, I mean, do some of that. But. Fortunately, my job is actually to kind of read. So, I mean, that is a benefit of the job that I'm in. Um, yeah, I, I think you did career to your strengths. I think yeah, you, I would say that that's much. something that I did. I agree. Indeed, indeed. Well, thank you again for the invite. If there's anything that we need to circle back to as you're editing or anything you need me to say more slowly or more concisely or whatever, I know I get a little long-winded, but just let me know if you need any sound bits in the editing or whatever. And I'm, I'm happy, to, happy to help however I can. I really enjoyed this. Perfect. Um, one thing I will need from you at some point um, is just some kind of image, a uh, headshot or a photo of yourself that you want. Uh, when I do the editing, I always put together an Instagram post and I include a quote from the guest. So that's part of the, uh, the stuff that I do. So just whenever you have time, I still have two episodes to edit ahead of this one. So okay. um, just, you know, think about it and get that to me when you can. Okay. Yeah. I'll uh, set myself up a reminder. I think my, my headshot is on my office computer, uh, mm -hmm. work computer, but I'll, I'll set a reminder right now and I'll get that to you this week. Perfect. Well, have a good rest of your Sunday and enjoy the, the cooling down weather. And I'll talk to you soon. Yeah. You do the same. And yeah, we'll talk soon. Take care, sir. Bye friend.